my story starts with um, me as a young mom, and I have two boys, as Jeff mentioned, Brogan and Bronson. Bronson's actually here tonight in the back, four years apart. And as a young mom, I was reading books and going to seminars and taking workshops, and every time these experts would get to this part about sibling conflict, they all said the same thing, which was, let them work it out. And I kept thinking, I've seen this, <laughs> and it usually doesn't go very well. There's hitting involved and slapping, and no one ever ends up really with peace in mind, and no one's learning anything. And so I also looked around at, um, at our uh, environment, our culture, and it's just filled with people who don't know how to work it out. I mean, we have courts and trial lawyers, and so I kept thinking these kids just don't know how. I'm also reading scripture, and I pulled some of them up here that are like, seek peace and pursue it. Live peaceably with all. I'm thinking working it out themselves just doesn't seem to fit those things. So kind of in my frustration, I, I kind of made up my own set of rules and guidelines to intervene every time my kids had a squabble so that I could teach them these skills that I felt like they needed uh, to get through life. In hindsight, I realize now that these were probably whispers from God telling me that my two boys were going to need each other very badly in life. Because um, the story is uh, that they really needed to become close. We uh, moved a lot. We, I think at one time we moved uh, four times in five years. And so all, my kids had uprooted from all of their friends and their, their home that they lived in, and they had to make new friends. And they had to be each other's new friends or best friends for months until those friends came along. When we moved here to Omaha, I uh, got on staff here at Brookside as a part-timer, which was great, but that I was home in the afternoons when the kids got home from school, but that meant in the summertime I was gone a lot. So all these skills that we had put together, they kind of had to start using those when I got the job here at Brookside. But the real challenges came when, after 20 years, their dad and I uh, ended up in divorce. And every weekend, these two had to pack their bags, leave all their friends and all their toys, and head down to Lincoln to spend the weekend with their dad. And they went, got plunked into a blended family environment that had stepbrothers and sisters that they didn't know, and a, and a half baby sister. And so, once again, they had to be close. They had to be each other's best friends. It doesn't stop there. <laughs> As divorces do, they kind of upset everything. And I at that time, Pastor Steve was looking for a full-time assistant, and so he asked me to step into that role, and so I did. But that also meant that I was no longer home in the afternoons when the kids got home. And again, those skills that we had practiced all those years had to come into play. And as divorces are, it upset the finances. I, uh, we had to move from our huge 3,500-square-foot, five-bedroom home into a little dinky 900-square-foot duplex. <laughs> we were literally all on top of each other. And these kids had to pull in these skills of sharing space and sharing things once again. And the story doesn't get any better. <laughs> uh, two years later, um, a week before Christmas, their dad committed suicide. And so here's these two boys, all of us. And it was as awful as it sounds, let me just say that. The grief was, was terrible. We were all devastated. And even though the three of us really went through a grieving period, I didn't lose a dad. They lost a dad. And so they once again looked to each other for this support and, and camaraderie. And grief has its way of working itself out. It, um, my oldest boy lost his job. 
my youngest boy got real sick. I mean, the kind of sick where they uh, make him homebound from Millard South. So at the time, I was, again, I was working full time, so my older boy had to kind of look out for my younger boy, and the two of them had to be there together. So again, I look back on this and realize that um, these were tools that God had kind of breathed into me because I had no idea that life was going to look like that and that their relationship was, was going to be so important to them. So Jeff wanted me to kind of share with you some of these rules, I guess, of things that we went through when they were little and worked through it as they got up into the junior high, high school age. So my number one rule was that I didn't want to force love on a child. So as you probably realize in your own family, the admiration from the younger child is pretty much automatic to the older child, right? Like that little one just thinks the older one is just the greatest thing. And, but the older one, that doesn't always transfer down. I, I love it when the, when the baby comes home from the hospital and everyone says to the older child, don't you just love your baby brother? And they're thinking, no, it just sits there. It doesn't do anything. So instead, what I did is I tried to focus the love on the older child, and I tried to tell the older child, look how much your baby brother loves you. I was hoping that the oldest child would respond to being loved without forcing love on him. And I would bring out things like, look at the way the baby's looking at you, look at the way the baby's laughing at you, and just every time say, this baby brother just loves you so much. And then when the baby brother got to be super annoying, I had to remind him, well, you know, he just wants your toys and he's following you around because he just loves you so much. And I never tried to force that love on the older child. The second thing I tried to do is I tried to learn to love their differences and help them love their differences. You know, in every family, it's the same thing. You probably realize this from your own family of origin. All the kids are different. And sometimes you think, wow, how did these kids, how were these raised by the same parents? They're so different. And when you look at that and it's across the board, I started to think maybe there was some of God's intention here in all these different personalities in my little family. I thought maybe these families are like the petri dish of life, that what we teach these kids in getting along with each other and all these personalities would serve them later on because the truth is these kids are going to end up sharing dorm rooms, they're going to go on missions trips with other kids, they're going to end up sharing an office cubicle with someone, and eventually we hope that they, they get married. And they're not only going to be sharing a home with someone that was raised in a different home, but they're going to be sharing it with someone of the opposite sex. So it was like, these were skills they really needed, and I only have 18 years to get these conflict skills in them. You know, you read one of the books that I have here that's kind of like, um, like the birth order book. You know, you realize that your firstborn is going to be naturally inclined to be structured and disciplined. He's going to be the one that's got his hot wheels, you know, all lined up in this perfectly line, you know, all neat and orderly, where your baby in the family is going to just not really care. And as I read these books, I realized, oh, that's kind of their wiring. To expect the oldest one to not love that structure or the youngest one to not do that was kind of a ridiculous expectation. And... Um, I also learned, like in reading about the love languages, that um, if I have a kid that maybe is a gift giver, sharing a gift that someone gave him is going to be a real challenge for him because that gift is more than a gift. It means something more, had something to do with love for him. And then I'll give you an example of how Gallup Strength Finders um, book helped me with an issue that we actually have come up with most recently, or you know, when I was living with the kids. 
So my youngest boy um, went out and purchased a movie that my oldest boy already has. And the oldest boy is completely irritated with this. Like, this just makes no sense at all because I have the movie, you can watch it anytime, why would you spend your money on that, what a waste, blah, blah, blah. My youngest one's saying, well, I just want to own the movie, I just, I, I just want to own it. Well, those of you from Gallup and would understand that thinking would recognize that as input. He loves to collect things. So I, I stepped into this little conversation they were having and said, no, wait a minute. And I said to Brogan, my older boy, you know that Bronson loves to collect things. The joy for him is, is having this and owning it. He wants to put it on his shelf and look at all of his collection together. That's, that's, that brings him great joy. You, on the other hand, have great joy in just being practical and, and very logical. Those of you from Gallup will recognize that as kind of a maximizer or analytical. Those are both, all, both of these are great qualities but you guys are gonna approach the situation from a completely different vantage point. So when I brought that to the surface, they both kind of reflected on each other's personalities and realized I was right. They were like, oh yeah. And so they kind of, and every time this situation comes up, they keep saying, I heard Brogan say this the other day, I know, I know, he likes to collect things. <laughs> it's like, he gets it now and he learns to appreciate that quality in his brother. So, um, so number three uh, would be that I never, put the older child in charge of the younger child. I feel like that's putting the older child in a no-win situation. I was in Nebraska Furniture Mart the other day and saw this little, I don't know, she probably was about eight years old. She's trying to handle a very large, uh, three-year-old-ish boy who was having a meltdown. And I felt so sorry for her because her mom was on the phone in some you know, disagreement or some confusion about her order. And I could hear this kid all over Nebraska Furniture Mart. and. Uh, past this poor girl, she's trying to carry him. I mean, she, he's just having a meltdown. And by the time I came by her again, um, the kid was sprawled out on the floor and, and, I, and she's just standing there looking at him. <laughs> and, I thought, and I wanted to say to her, honey, all these women, you know, all these people that are staring at you, they aren't judging you. They're looking for ideas because we're all, we, none of us know what to do either. Anyway, she's in a no-win situation. First of all, it's when I, did, when I would do that or didn't do that, when I thought about that with my older boy, I thought, that's not his job. That's my job, to watch the younger child. And I also feel like it puts them in a no-win situation. First of all, they are not skilled to do that. They don't have any skills. We have a hard time with it, right? So why put that on a, on a younger, watch your, watch your sister while I go do shopping. And um, she doesn't know how to do it. She's going to fail. So now the little one is angry at her because she's making him do things he doesn't want to do. So now he's mad and resentful to her. And now the mom is mad at her because she failed. It's like this poor kid that she just can't win. So my only exception to this rule is in babysitting, in meaning I would pay him to watch the child. So when Brogan uh, turned 12, I asked him if he wanted to babysit and told him I would pay him. So we went through all the, you know, the rules and safety and everything. And at the end of the conversation, I said, now, Brogan, what are you going to do if you and Bronson get in a fight? And he said, I don't know. I said, you lose. That's what I pay you the money for, because what's more important here is that safety and peace happen in our home while we're gone. And if it's something that's unfair, don't worry about it. I'll, I'll, I'll get that straightened out with you when I get back. But right now, it's more important, peace and safety, you lose. Well, what I didn't want to happen, too, is that now I'm paying, you know, the older boy, the 12-year-old, lots of money, and I didn't want the 
shopping trip to go to Toys R Us to be, you know, a complete unbalance because now I got a kid with some money and I got another kid over here who doesn't have any. So what I did with Bronson is I would say to him, your brother's going to babysit you tonight and I have a job for you. Your job is to be obedient to Brogan and I'm going to pay you some money. Now, I'm not going to pay you what I'm paying Brogan because he's in charge, but I'm going to give you a little bit of money because this is your job tonight because it's really important that we have safety and peace. And actually, that worked. They got along great. There was only one time where Brogan had to lose. <laughs> and so it was worth the money. Uh, number four is respecting their toys, um, learning to look at their toys in a different way. Now, when I say toy, I, I need to explain that I mean it could be a skateboard. It could be a piece of clothing. That's what my sisters and I thought about were clothes. Um, it could be like a room like a bathroom or a remote control. So I'm going to use the word toy, but I mean whatever they're going to fight about. Um, I never said it's just a toy because to them, it's not just a toy. It's something really important to them. I'm going to show you a picture of my latest toy. <laughs> it's a new bike that Chuck, my husband back there, he got me this for Valentine's Day, and it is beautiful. And this bike is the kind of bike that, you know, it's kind of the, I'll have it for the rest of my life kind of bike. Got the pedals and everything, and I'm really excited about it. And as much as I'm an adult, I really um, don't want any of you riding my bike, <laughs> I'm going to be honest. <laughs> and I tried to keep these kind of things in my mind. Like, what was my toy? Is it an iPhone? Is it a, is it a you know, a new car? What would I not want my peers to play with? And that's how I kind of sympathized and learned to elevate this level of toy understanding. I also read somewhere that a child's understanding of ownership doesn't really happen until they're about two or three. So to expect a two-year-old to get it, that just because your toy is over here and somebody's hand is on it means you still own it, they don't understand that. So I had to be very, very patient with that period of time when they don't quite get the sharing ownership thing. Um, I also realized that toys open doors. So when someone comes to me and they're upset with Batman's face has been scribbled on with a Sharpie, you know, I had to say to them, I'm so sorry. I know this toy is really important to you and I'm really upset that this happened. Let's see if we can get it fixed. But I knew that this Batman was probably going to turn into a Game Boy, was probably going to turn into a skateboard, was probably going to turn into a bike, probably going to turn into a car, turn into a girlfriend, although she's not a toy. But... <laughs> I knew that she would be, these things would be important in their life. What's important to him would be important to me. And I realized that I couldn't jump in over here and say, hey, you know, this thing that's important to you, it's important to me, so let's talk about it. I knew that wasn't going to fly. I knew that if I learned all the names of Thomas the Tank Engines <laughs> down here, that that would say to them, what's important to you is important to me, and it's always important to me. And when things get ruined or things are destroyed, I, I hurt for you and I will help you. And that pattern followed us all the way through. Um, I also tried to take change out the word share, especially when the kids are like under the age of five, because I don't think they quite got that. I used, swapped out the word and used the word take turns because that they seemed to understand a little better. And that was really what I was going for. I didn't expect them to sit down and hold the toy together. I wanted them to take turns with it. So that helped a little tweak. I had another rule that was when a toy is new, the owner gets to play with it first. So this is particularly difficult on birthday day because you have birthday presents everywhere and you have unbirthday child 
just drooling, like, oh man, there's just presents everywhere. But I didn't want the birthday boy to lose out on this really special time. So um, what I would do is I'd give them a pre-warning the day before, and I'd say, now remember, tomorrow's your brother's birthday, there's gonna be lots of new toys. Our rule is that the owner gets to play with the toy first, remember that? And I also planned in my mind that I would help keep that child occupied that day. <laughs> like I would play games or do a movie. So after all the kids would be gone and all their birthday presents out and everywhere, I'd get all the presents stacked up and kind of tuck them off to the side so they were at least out of the vision of the unbirthday child because that's pretty much torturous for them. So I'd put them out of sight and then when the birthday boy would take them down and get them all open, then we could kind of move into the sharing and the taking turns and all of that. Well, inevitably, when this comes up, you know, you hear the same thing all the time. But if he plays with it, he'll break it. So my rule was, if he breaks the toy, I will buy you a brand new one. Because it's more important to me that you learn to share this toy or take turns than my money. So if he, if he breaks it, I promise you, I will buy you a new one. And I had to be committed to that because I, didn't, I knew that if I laid that out there and I didn't follow through with that, I would never be able to use that rule again. But that was our rule. So another rule we had was you have to ask to play with a toy. You have to ask. If you're not playing with the toy, you have to say yes. So when I say play, I also mean in the camp. Do you have a kid that puts things in camp? You know, like you have all the transformers lined up, and even though you're not technically touching it, it's in the camp. So that's what I mean by with play with, if it's in your camp. So. Um, this is how uh, th this works out. So I would keep reminding them, if it's not in your camp or you're not playing with it, you have to let that child play with the toy, but that child has to ask you. The other rule I have is never, ever grab. I think there is nothing that accelerates tempers and anger faster than a grab, right? You've seen it. Somebody snatches something and you get a punch, somebody's crying or a kick. It just is so irritating to the situation. So. But I also had to say that that was my rule too, that I would never ever grab a toy out of a child's hand. So this is how the scenario usually plays out. You have a meltdown, you know, somebody's upset, so you walk into the room and you've got this fight going on and my rule was always in my head that let the least upset child go first. So someone's crying and so I let this one talk. Tell me what's going on. This one's now under control, tell me what's going on. So I would say to, to this one that has the toy, did you ask to play with the toy? No, I didn't. Were you playing with the toy? No, I wasn't. Okay, you have to ask to play with the toy. So they say, can I play with the toy? And this one would have to say, but he's gonna break it. And I'd say, remember what our rule is. Our rule is that if he breaks it, I'll buy you another one. So if it turns out that someone has the toy that isn't supposed to have it and they're digging their heels in and they're not giving it to them, I would say this to them, I'm asking you to give the toy to your brother, whoever the rightful owner is of this. I'm not, I don't wanna do that. And, I, and then I would say to them, all right, this is your choice. You either give the toy to him or I'll give it to him. Like I was giving them like this false power, you know, that they had, now they could choose. And if they still dug their heels in, that's the only time I grabbed a toy, is when I'd say to him, I'm gonna take the toy from you now, and I'm gonna give it to him. And then I would take the toy and move it to whoever was supposed to have it. So that's my no grab rule. I do have a swap out rule for to toddlers, because obviously the little ones don't understand the rules. They're not even able to ask you know, permission to, to use the toy. So what I would usually do is I, so you see, you know, you have a, 
a kid that's got things in camp and he's playing, and the toddler wanders over, grabs something, starts sticking it in their mouth, wandering off. You know, this one's upset. So I would say to this child, I would say to this child, now remember what is our swap out rule. So you need to go get a toy that's yours, that you're not playing with, because it has to be yours, because the kid's not interested in anything that they are playing with, right? Go to get something that's yours, and then you're going to swap him out. So he would walk up to his brother, and he'd say, I'll trade you. And then he'd get his toy back and go back to his camp and everything would be fine. Of course, the to toddlers don't care. They just wandering around. They don't really care. So I taught my older boy the swap out rule for the little one before he could learn. And I also had to reiterate at that time this whole thing of the love going up. So I would say to the frustrated older boy, I, I know this is really frustrating and he doesn't understand our rules yet. So, and it's, he just loves you and he loves everything about you. So, you know, you're just going to have to be patient here. Go swap him out a toy. And it just keep, kept reiterating that love coming up. It was a good opportunity to do that. Um, what's really fun, oh, let me talk about this one first, for taking turns. And some of you probably already do this. Sometimes there'd be times where I'd walk in and I have no idea who should rightfully be the owner and playing with this toy. So we'd flip a coin or we'd draw straws, which they loved. But when, then when that happened, I'd set the timer for 10 to 15 minutes. But what I did is I took the timer with me. So I went off into another room or whatever, and I had the timer with me. And then at five minutes before that turn was up, I'd go back into the, we had a toy room. I'd go back into the toy room and I'd tell the kid with the toy, you've got five more minutes to play with your toy. So it gave him some time to think about disengaging, you know, your time's going to be up pretty soon. Occasionally, if the toy was really fantastic, or <laughs> if it was just something I knew he was going to have a hard time giving up, I'd give him a five-minute warning, and I'd give him a three-minute warning. And when the time is up, then we kind of went back into some of our, you know, usually it was, they did that just fine. Occasionally, it was that, you know, scenario when I had to say, you either give it to him or I'll give it to him. But usually, that worked really well. Um, What's really fun is when you kind of get this pattern set down is to take one of the children aside, or both of them, you know, whatever, and have them watch the other child sh uh, enjoying the toy. Now, as much as I say that I didn't want you to ride my bike, after I've ridden it for a little while, <laughs> I might let you ride the bike, but I would want to watch you ride it. I would want to hear how wonderful it was for you, how the gears worked. I mean, I want to enjoy that. And I think with kids, especially when you're trying to get a selfish kid become unselfish, he has to experience that joy of someone enjoying his toy. So I would take one of the kids off to the side and I'd say, look at your brother enjoying that, whatever it is. Yeah, he really loves that toy. I'm really proud of you for taking turns with him on that. It's no wonder he loves you so much. And you do that with a kid, three or four times, and they're experiencing that joy of someone enjoying their toy, you got a selfless kid who's like, you can absolutely play with this toy. I'm going to watch you enjoy it. And so you have to do it a little while, depending on the age of your kid, but that seemed to work really well. The other thing that I did is I, now number five, is that I really wanted to hammer in their brains, come and get me. You have to come and get me so I can intervene. I mean, at some point, I just abandoned the whole idea of the kids not fighting because my goal was come and get me. And that I usually had to, um, this usually came out when, it, when they didn't come and get me. I had to make sure that when I laid that out there, I was really committed to that. And I knew that if one time I didn't come and I didn't provide justice or whatever, 
that they wouldn't come and get me anymore. So I had to be really, really committed to that when I laid that out there. But when they forget, and that's usually how this rule, for me anyway, that, that came a lot was, is when I could teach it is when they'd forgotten. So I'd go into a scene where, you know, someone's crying or whatever and having a meltdown, and I'd say to the kid, the, the one child, why didn't you come and get me? You should have come and gotten me. And then he tells me the story, yeah, you should have that toy. I would have come in here and, and this, what happened over here is totally wrong. You're in the right, I'm with you here. But you didn't come and get me and guess what? Now you're in trouble because you hit your brother. And I do that, I did that about three or four times before it finally sunk in. You gotta come and get me, gotta come and get me. And the thing I think that sold the boys on that is when I told them they were right. Like, yeah, you're the one that should have this toy right now. I would have come in and done this. No one would be in trouble here but you are now because you didn't come and get me. So again, that's a hard one to hammer in when it, only when it doesn't go, doesn't go right. <laughs> um, and sometimes I would make sure that everybody got blame because um, I feel like in life, really, when there's arguments and disagreements, as you all know, chances are usually people are wrong on both sides. So as I would be you know, kind of disciplining or, or barking at the one that was really clearly in the wrong, I'm thinking, Okay, what can I pull out so that somebody else is to blame here? And I do remember one time, one kid was, hadn't done anything wrong at all, and I remember looking at him and going, and you need to stop being so sensitive. <laughs> I was just like pulling something out of the air that I could you know, give him something to be responsible for. <laughs> um, the other thing I did is I used that baby monitor. I still had it laying around, so I put it in the room where they played all the time, and I took the monitor with me so I could start to hear if there was a scuffle going on. You know, you can hear the voices starting to get agitated, and I'd start heading that direction to see if they were going to work it out. If they worked it out, I'd just turn right back around because, especially with boys, I think, boy, they, they want to take care of things right away. <laughs> so I tried to intervene quickly. So my number seven is what happens when there's physical harm. Again, boys are probably worse at this than girls, but um, here's what usually happens when, um, when there's been physical harm. You go in, someone's crying, someone's been hurt, obviously, and you're so, uh, you so want to find out what's happened and you so want to bark at the kid that's responsible. So you start saying to them, what happened? What happened here? What did you do that for? I've told you not to do that. You know, and you're barking at this kid and this kid's falling apart because he's hurt and so he's feeling neglected. So I didn't want that to happen. So what I would do is I would say, I would pick up the hurting child and, or you know, pull him to my side or whatever and start to comfort him and I would tell this one to be quiet but he needed to stay right by me stick right here by me, and you need to sit here. So we'd go sit down or something, and you need to sit here. I didn't say this, but I wanted him to experience the trauma that was happening here. So many times we pick up a little one and we you know, cart him off to the bathroom to put a Band-Aid on or whatever, and the child that's done the harm doesn't see how bad it was. So I wanted, and I made him sit with me here so that he could see this kid crying or he could see the blood or the hematoma on the head or whatever. And so. When all the crying is stopped and things are settled down, I would actually think about the motive of what happened. And I think that's crucial when there's been physical harm. Because when you think about kind of your own incidences, there's times when kids are just neglectful and sloppy and you know, they're just careless and kids get hurt. But then there's other times when a kid has acted out of like anger and he's popped somebody or he's jealous and he's, and he's pushed somebody. Those are two different things. Even though you still have an injury, and I still think they need to watch and witness the, the destruction that they've done, I think when it comes down to disciplining, and I have to really think about the difference in their heart. 
it, to me, it looked like something like the difference between first-degree murder and manslaughter. I mean, there's two different things, and both are important, and both need to be disciplined, but I think they need to be disciplined in a different way. One will probably outgrow it, just being careless and neglectful. The other one is probably a more serious issue of the heart. So uh, that's my rule on um, physical harm. Number eight was I had to keep reminding myself that I was programming their computers. And sometimes this came about with little things. I never said to the kids, you kids always fight, because I realized they would probably step into that role and that they would say in their head, well, we always fight, so we're going to fight. So instead, what I said when they were fighting, I would act really shocked. Wow, I'm really surprised you guys had a hard time with that because you normally get along great. You normally share really well. You love each other so much and you're so close, so I'm really surprised at this situation. And I used that a lot so that it programmed the computer to say, hmm, yes, we get along well. We love each other. And I wanted him to act on that and not the negative. Um, I also uh, put pictures around the house of the two of them getting along. And I don't mean family pictures, family vacations. I put pictures of just the two of them having a good time in places where I know they would see them, like in, the bath or in their bathroom or like by the TV. Because I, to I wanted to remind them of the close relationship and the fun times that they have together. And it sounds little, but I think it kind of factored into the computer programming. Um, I made them say goodnight every night with a hug. That helped if there had been a rough day. I also had what I called the birthday brother spot. <laughs> so when it's birthday time, you know, you have all the kids over, and it seems like the best friends want to come up and sit right next to the birthday boy. And I would tell all the friends, no, no. This is your brother spot. This is the brother spot. It's the special spot for your brother. So when it's you, when they're sitting down for the cake, there was the birthday, the birthday for the brother spot. When they're sitting down to open presents, you know, all the kids want to sit right close to the birthday boy. Oh, no, no, no. This is the brother spot right here. And so they always had that spot. Pretty soon all the neighbor kids figured it out, and they knew not to sit there. So <laughs> they knew that was a special spot for the brother. I also had a thing called, in my head, the... Um, Second special gift. So you know how on Christmas when kids have a list of toys that they want and they have like the big gift and it comes from you or Santa. And then there's that second coolest gift that always came from the brother. Because I wanted them to understand this is important. This brother loves you and he's going to get you the second coolest awesome gift. Just a little thing but it seemed to make a difference. Um, the, number nine is that I had to determine the value or the heart issue that I was after. So I put up here on the screen, um, sometimes you come into situations where there's so much going on, you're not sure where to start. You go and throw that up where, so you walk into it and you've got like somebody's hitting, you got people who are yelling, somebody obviously didn't ask, there's some disrespect going on, they didn't ask if they could share a toy. Now you got a kid lying about it, they've said horrible nasty things to each other and something is broken on top of that. So you go in and it's like, ah, I don't even know where to start here. <laughs> There's just so much going on. And so I had to quickly think, what is the value of the heart that I'm trying to go for? What is the most important thing that's going on here? Like in this situation, it's the lying. And this is how I could swift this out in my head. And you have to think really fast sometimes. But I said to myself, what is the quality or the value, the heart issue, that's going to follow them into manhood? So most of that stuff is probably going to go away. But that lying... That may not. So the rest of the stuff, I kind of dismissed it, chose my battles, and I picked the thing that I thought would follow them into manhood. 
The rest of it, I'm not saying I dismissed it, but it was kind of a, just a talk. You know, it wasn't like I disciplined in that way. And that is the thing that jumped out, is how I, how I talked to the boys about it. Sometimes this challenges my own value system. When um, my youngest boy was in junior high, my oldest boy, my youngest boy uh, was about, this is actually about the time that their dad died. Uh, he was about seventh grade and his brother was a sophomore. And um, I think Bronson, the younger boy, started to realize that his brother wasn't as cool as he thought he was <laughs> all these years. And I think that was a real eye-opener for him. You know, he was getting into music and sports and things like that. And his brother was a self-proclaimed geek. And with this brother, well, that wasn't such the issue, but with the geek brother comes the geek friends. And the geek friends were eating the younger boy's food. And that was a huge issue. So again, I'm working full time, so I'm not home all the time seeing all this go on. I'm texting and parenting by text, that's what I call it. And it was apparently getting kind of nasty. And um, I had to be honest that I kind of sided with my younger boy. I mean, here I am, and I'm a single mom. I can hardly feed the two boys I've got. And here comes this kid from a very well-to-do family, actually. And he's coming down eating all of our food. <laughs> I'm like, ah. Oh. So I kind of, I kind of saw what he was talking about. For me, it was a financial thing. But when I thought about the value, I, I told Bronson, I said, look, what's more important to me is that our home be a place where people can come and feel welcome. So if he eats your big old bag of Cheeto puffs, I will buy you a new one. Because it's more important to me that you understand that this home is a place of welcome than that bag of Cheetos. And then I said a prayer to the Lord that he would help me provide for the children <laughs> because, <laughs> because I'm thinking, wow, that was a $4 bag of Cheetos. So you see how I had to kind of sift through and pull these values up so that you can address something and figure out how you're going to uh, teach them. Number 10 is that I realized that I had to swap out my goal. Um, someone once told me that God calls us to faithfulness and not necessarily success. And I realized at some point that my goal wasn't that they stopped fighting. My goal was for me to stay in the game and to be faithful to intervening with these kids, to go in and teach them. That was my goal, is that I just hung in there with it. Um, and I realized that I didn't want to miss this part of God's design and that he'd put these kids together. Um, again, I think these were little whispers that I received from God way back when. And I had no idea that this would turn out to be such a crucial part of my son's life, that they needed each other. So I was a single mom for eight years. And some of those days, I feel like God was not only my, my, my best ace in the hole, <laughs> some days he was the only ace in the hole. And especially when, um, you know, you're parenting alone, it is, it is rough. Um, about a year and a half ago, when Chuck and I decided to get married, my two boys, at the time they were 18 and 23, they decided that they were going to move out on their own in their own apartment together. And um, so we were thrilled. because <laughs> Blended families are very challenging. <laughs> so, um, so they decided they'd get an apartment together. This is a picture of our of wedding day. Or slash, my children are moving out of the nest day. <laughs> it really was our last time together as the three of us. And it had just been the three of us for a very long time. So about... Um, so they've been in an apartment now for about a year and a half. Um, they are age 24 and almost 20. And about six months into this apartment living, I got a text from one of them who said, I'm done. We had a huge fight. I'm getting another roommate. I am done. 
And I thought, uh-oh. And immediately I wanted to jump in like I had done all these years before. And um, I couldn't because we didn't live together. So I texted him a couple, a couple days later and said, how's it going? He was like, oh, yeah, we, you know, we talked for a couple hours and we hugged it out and then we watched a movie. We're good. And I was like, <laughs> all right, okay. <laughs> and then I thought, thank you, God. Thank you for inspiring me to help these kids get along and, and, to, and to rely on each other. And I came home from their apartment a couple weeks ago, and the first thing I said when I got in the door to my husband, Chuck, is I said, you know, they seem so happy. And um, this weekend, um, my oldest boy turned 24. I don't know if any of you have seen the, the movie Nebraska. It's about a father-son relationship. And uh, they watched that the night of, this, of my older boy's birthday. And the next day on Facebook, this is what I read from the younger boy, posts this about his older boy, uh, about the older brother. Bronson writes this. I have to say, watching Nebraska was hard tonight. I saw a lot of resemblances to the relationship I had with my father. But no matter what kind of bump I have in my life, I always have my brother, Brogan. We've seen and been through things people never and should ever have to go through. But no matter what, we always have each other's back. I love you and respect you as a brother and as a friend. This is on Facebook. <laughs> Happy birthday, big guy. Let's carry on a legacy, brother. And I thought, wow. You know, all this intervening, that was a ton of work. As it probably sounds to you, it was a lot of work. But I feel like I, I remained faithful to that, and the results are now that these two kids have each other for the rest of their life. So um, I think we're just about out of time. So I'd like to pray for all of you and, and all of your kids and all the fighting that goes on. And then I think Jeff will come up here and, and dismiss you. Father God, I just pray that you would please help these parents to teach peace to these precious souls as, um, as these little kids navigate the first years of conflict. And I pray that you would give these parents patience and great discernment to assess each situation and every argument with your wisdom and insight. Give their homes peace, Lord, because we know that this will truly honor you. In Jesus' name, amen.